0: So today we're continuing from the book of Philippians. So Philippians chapter 2, from verses 1 to 11. So from verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, I'm going to invite Jimbo up and he's going to continue our series on Joyful Living.
1: All right, well, today I want to ask you a question. And the question I want to ask you today is, what is your ambition in life? Uh, What are your goals or dreams in life? Uh, Do you plan to finally one day graduate from this fine institution? Uh, You know, gather around with all your friends, take lots of photos. I've been seeing a lot of that happening lately. Uh, Is it your goal to get the university medal when you graduate? Are you aiming for kind of the top of your class? Or is your ambition to live out the philosophy that so many of us live by, which is that peas get degrees? Is it your plan to meet some amazing guy or girl? You know, maybe one day settle down and have that hipster wedding, uh, move into a cool little inner city terrace? Uh, or is it your goal to become the next tech startup CEO, uh, maybe float your company for a few million dollars? Uh, or is it your goal to win a Nobel Prize? Maybe you want to eradicate AIDS through your medical research. Uh, Do you have ambition for a successful life? As you look around those big posters, you know those big red ones here at uni? Uh, We're told over and over again that there's a lot of people hoping that your ambition will be that leadership for good starts here at Sydney University. But perhaps your ambition is slightly different. Uh, Perhaps your goal is to live a quiet life. Maybe you just want to keep up with everyone else in the crowd and just kind of blend in. Uh, not stand out too much, not to be too rich, uh, not to be too poor either, uh, nothing too radical, you just want to have an ordinary life and all the middle class things that that involves as well. How would you describe your goal or your ambitions in life? How would you describe your mindset in life? Are you an optimist, Are you the kind of person who looks for the good in everything and you think that the glass is always half full? Or are you more like me? Are you more of a pessimist? You always wonder what's actually behind what people are saying. You know, is is actually what they're saying real, or are you more of a kind of glass half empty kind of person? Uh, are you a perfectionist? Are you always seeking the unattainable goals, make everything ordered and fit where it belongs? Or are you apathetic with a mess of life, just going with your flow, maybe not wearing shoes like some of you EUers are prone to do? If someone looked at your life, how would they describe your mindset? I think regardless of how you describe your mindset or your ambitions, uh, there's one thing in life that our world keeps telling us to have and that is that our world keeps telling us to be fulfilled, to be fulfilled. Uh, This mindset which we swim in every day through the television, through our smartphones, through the advertising industry and our families, our friends, they keep telling us basically uh, you start your life on earth as a giant bucket, okay? and what you need to do in life is you need to be fulfilled and so what you need to do is you keep needing to fill your bucket up more and more to the maximum if you want to make your life count and so to live a fulfilled life or a significant life what we need to do is we, we run around and we try and fill up our bucket with more and more achievements and so our generation is one of the most overqualified generations ever now for me personally I have four bachelor degrees not just one I just thought it's a bit like Pokemon you gotta go around and get them all okay? <laughs> We're told to go and fill up our life with more and more experiences. So we go and we travel to more places, we try different restaurants, we take lots of different photos of the places we visit and we fill up our bucket with more and more stuff, hoping that it's going to make us happy and give us joy. When that doesn't work, we then turn to social media and hope that maybe by having more friends on Facebook or more likes or more comments, that if we fill up our life with more and more, then maybe we'll have this temporary popularity and it'll make us feel fulfilled in life. And so then we turn to gurus, we turn to experts uh, who live fulfilled lives, and we try and find the secret to success, uh, the path to real joy and real fulfilment. My wife Jane uh, recently purchased a book, and it's become quite popular recently. It's a book called Spark Joy by Marie Kondo. Uh, This Japanese author claims that she can help you spark joy with her mindset or her outlook on life. And what is the secret, according to Marie Kondo, for the secret to happiness? Well. It's a book about how to declutter and how to tidy your home, okay? You see, you too can spark real joy in life. Now, this might be a bit strange for some of us today who haven't cleaned our rooms in a few centuries. Uh, I'm sure some of our mothers would have lots of joy if we actually tidied our rooms, but let's look at Marie Kondo's tips for how to master true joy. Uh, She has chapter headings such as Honing Your Sensitivity to Joy How to Fill Your Home with Joy Everything you need to know about storing things joyfully. An entranceway that sparks joy. A living room that sparks joy. A kitchen that sparks joy. There's even one about the bathroom, but I left that one off. Okay? And in case you're not a big reader, there's even pictures for the engineers so they can look at the diagrams and work out how to spark joy in their own life. Okay? Obviously, this cleaning lady is someone successful and worth listening to about where to find joy, right? But what about someone on death row? Would you go to a guru who's ended up facing death as a motivational speaker to help you work out where you can find joy in life? Why would we listen to the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church in Philippi about having ambitions and mindsets that are successful when his ambitious mindset has actually ended him up in jail? Uh, We're going to begin today by having a look at what Paul tells us about how to have true joy and the radical perspective that God calls on us to have. He says in verse two, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and of one mind. Paul says, If you've gained any benefit from being a Christian if you've gained any encouragement, any comfort, any compassion from knowing who God is, then he says, take my joy to the maximum. Okay, don't go halfway, don't be half-hearted about it, but fulfill my joy by having the same mind, the same heart and the same spirit. And what really gives Paul and God joy is seeing Christians think the same way. Now, that just sounds a little bit weird if you're anything like me, In fact, that sounds a bit like brainwashing, right? That we will all think the same and we will finish each other's sentences and a little bit like living like robots. But what Paul means here is not that we will be uniform, homogenous, robot Christians who all like the same bands, eat the same foods, play the same nerdy board games. Now, what he means is that our minds and our hearts will be focused on the same things. Paul wants our hearts and our minds and our spirits all of our, the totality of our being, to be focused. And he wants our ambitions and our desires, our goals in life, to be the same. To align all of our thinking and desires together as a Christian community on the same goal. And so what is this common ambition that all of us, if we're Christians, are supposed to have? Uh, Well, in verse 3, he spells it out for us. The way we bring complete joy is by making sure we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. The new mindset, uh, the new way of thinking that Paul says that all of us, if we're Christians, are to have, is to regard or to consider other people as more important or as better than you. Your new outlook in life is not to be found in tidying your home, but in thinking that other people are more important than you are. So how does that play itself out? Well, it says in these verses that it means making sure that nothing we do is motivated by our own selfish ambitions, uh, to try and get ahead in this world, to ensure that our own self-absorbed ego isn't motivating our actions in life. Now, that sounds pretty obvious, right? You know, don't be selfish. But it's so hard for us to live out, I think, particularly at Sydney University, right? Uh, we are the ones who go to the Sandstone Uni in Sydney. In fact, the oldest university in all of Australia. The most prestigious university in our country. Jimbo, don't you know that other people in other unis, like Western Sydney Uni or maybe Macquarie, they try and get into Sydney Uni. Okay, they try and transfer after their first year to come here. We're more privileged than other people. Uh, we're more special. Our uni produces leaders. Other unis produce followers. We produce seven of the nation's prime ministers, 11 of the New South Wales' premiers, and way too many Australian rugby captains. One of the first questions we get asked when we start uni is which school did you go to? Because we want to work out where everyone fits on the pecking order so we can work out whether we should look up to them or whether we should look down on them. But here, Paul tells us to think of other people as better than yourself. And not just your peers, those who are next to you, but those who are less educated, as better than you. Those who are less affluent, as better than you. They're less good-looking. Now, I know that's hard to believe there's people less good-looking than me. As better than you. Those who are less together or less nice, as better than you. And we're told in verse 3 to do this in Humility. Now, humility is not, uh, as some people might think, it's not devaluing yourself or somehow lying about the gifts that God has given you in life. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia series of books, says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, that is, being negative about yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, that is, thinking about other people more than you think about yourself. I want to ask you, honestly, how often do you do that? If you had to kind of tally up the hours that you spend thinking in the day, how many hours do you spend thinking about other people? And how many hours do you spend thinking about yourself? And so here, in a, in a radical reversal of what is natural or what is normal for us as humans, God tells us to stop being self-centered and to start being other-person-centered. Uh, to care more about the interests and the concerns of other people than your own concerns. But hang on a minute, Jimbo. Like, are you telling me here that what I need to do is stop looking after myself and then just concern all my time with looking after other people? Like, that sounds great, but that doesn't work out. Okay? If, if I'm not looking after me, who's going to look after me? You know, I need to look after number one. That's what the world has told me. Look after number one first and then, maybe if I've got some leftovers... I might consider helping other people. I might think about possibly serving other people after I've sorted out my own affairs. But that's not what a citizen of God's kingdom, a follower of Jesus, thinks like or looks like. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, then funnily enough, that means that you will follow the example of Jesus. And so Paul tells us in verse 5 that this mindset, this thinking, this way of thinking about other people before yourself, is actually the very same mindset that Jesus Christ himself had. Often Christians talk about the cross of Jesus, don't they? How Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, uh, to deal with the penalty and the punishment that all of us deserve. And that's absolutely right and absolutely true. But that is not the whole of the story. You see, the cross of Jesus doesn't just save you from your sins but the cross of Jesus also reshapes your subsequent life. If you are a Christian, then what you sign up for when you follow Jesus is to live a cross-shaped life. Jesus says if you want to follow Him, then you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then begin to follow Him. Point four of the EU doctrinal basis, the statement that we as an evangelical union believe in, says that we believe in redemption from the guilt the penalty and the power of sin only through the sacrificial death as our representative and substitute of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Now it's right that so often we focus on the redemption or the rescue part, how Christians are rescued and saved from the guilt and the penalty of our sins. But do you notice how the death of Jesus here also rescues us from the power of sin? Because actually living for your selfish desires, living for your own ambitions and considering yourself as more important than other people, I want to suggest is actually at the very heart of sin itself. The early church father, Augustine, wrote in his famous book, The City of God, he says, Pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? So much of our sin actually stems from our craving, our desire to exalt ourselves more than we actually deserve in life, to think of ourselves as so much greater than we actually are. And so Jesus' death on our behalf, it not only pays the price for the times in which we've been self-absorbed, but it actually frees us from the ongoing power of selfishness in our lives. And so that's why Paul can call on followers of Jesus to follow the example of Christ, the only person who lived without the craving for undue exaltation. And so he goes on in verse 6 to describe who Jesus is. He says that Jesus in his very nature is God. Do you notice that? Do you notice what Jesus does with his divinity? The fact that he is God himself, the creator of the universe. It says that he doesn't consider or value that his equality with God is something that he could grasp onto or hold on to, or use for his own advantage. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus is the one person in all the universe who has all of the rights, all of the privileges in the world, and yet he doesn't use them. He actually doesn't wield them for his own advantage. This one man in all of human history actually deserves all of his rights. He made the world, and he made everything, including you and I, in this world. And he has every right to look at his creatures and say, respect me, worship me, honour me. But instead in verse 7, what do we see? We see that he empties himself. The one who existed as God eternal, who needs nothing in and of himself, made himself nothing. And so Christians outrageously make the claim that we worship the God who became a slave. And yet not only did Jesus become one of us, as if that wasn't humiliating and embarrassing enough, that the immortal creator of the universe would become one of his feeble and weak creatures. But then he becomes a human and then he lowers himself further by becoming a slave, by serving us. And then lowers himself even further by dying on a cross. the Roman politician, Cicero, uh, wrote about crucifixion a few decades before Jesus lived. And he writes about how humiliating it was for a Roman citizen. He says, Even if death be threatened, we may die free men, but the executioner and the veiling of the head and the mere name of the cross to be far removed. The expectation, the mere mention of them even, is unworthy of a Roman citizen and of a free man we often kind of don't realise this because we wear crosses around our neck and we have them on churches, but being crucified was such an offensive and a humiliating way to die. A slow, painful, public death that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. It was a punishment that was so bad that only non-Roman citizens could be subject to. It was thought that even the bare possibility of even talking about it or being exposed to seeing someone else being crucified was unworthy of a Roman citizen. But here in Paul's letter, he's told us in chapter 1, verse 27, to live lives worthy, not of being a Roman citizen, but of being citizens worthy of the gospel, of the shameful cross of Jesus. And we're called to live lives worthy of the humiliating love that Jesus displays for us on the cross. His willingness to humbly love us and serve us by dying, it not only saves us, but it now reorients and it reshapes our mindsets going forwards. So that now, instead of living selfish lives as self-absorbed people, uh, we are now to live for the interests of others, willingly giving our lives and our time and our energies for the sake of others. I want to pause here for a moment to reflect on how different that is uh, from our world today, isn't it? Living as citizens of Australia, we're told about our rights, our privileges. We are entitled to vote. We have the right to a free education. We deserve to be able to purchase our own home. We have the right to not be offended. We are entitled to a job when we finish from uni, aren't we? But you know what? We're not. We are not owed anything in life. In fact, everything we have according to the Bible in this life is a gift. An undeserved and a gracious gift. And rather than demanding our entitlements, we should be thankful for the things that we have. And yet, we live in a world where instead of being thankful, everyone claims their own rights over and against the rights of others. I live in an apartment block. And nothing makes this more obvious than living in close proximity to other people. You see, one person wants the right to a quiet place to live while the neighbour next door wants the right to enjoy a party in their home. And yet, the example of Jesus shows, shows us something radically different. Rather than grasping and holding on to our rights, Jesus lays down his rights. And the privileges that came being with God himself, he lays them down in order to sacrificially love and serve a bunch of undeserving people like you and I. And so I want to suggest, if you're really concerned about rights, that's, that's okay, but be more concerned with the rights of others than you are for your own entitlements. If you really want to fight against oppression, fight against the oppression and injustices that others face, those who cannot speak for themselves, rather than for your own right to party. But what is the result of Jesus' example? Is it just some kind of nice, moral example for us to follow? Well no, in verse 9 we learn that as a result of Christ's other person-centered love, His sacrificial death, God has now exalted Him to the highest place. He has now risen Him back to life and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God will vindicate Jesus and He will honour Him because of the way in which He sacrificially loved us. And so if you're someone here today, who wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian? Here is something to, to ponder and consider. That's what we in the EU are really on about when we wear those horrible green T-shirts that say "Jesus is Lord." We are actually preempting that final end point of history, where not only EUers and not only other Christians, but everything in the entire cosmos will declare, whether happily or bitterly, that Jesus is indeed Lord. That the one who became a slave is now the boss of all. And so, what we see in this passage is, is that the way to greatness is actually through humiliation. The way to live a fulfilled life is not by filling up your bucket with more and more stuff, but by emptying and emptying yourself, even to the point of death. So, what does this look like in daily life? Uh, well, Paul says in verse 12 that it's time for a bit of a workout. He tells us to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, on first glance, this might seem a bit strange, doesn't it? You know, didn't Jesus already die on the cross and save us? Aren't we already saved if we're Christians and put our faith in Him? Do we need some kind of a second salvation? Did Jesus not do a good enough job up there on the cross? Now, this phrase, working out your salvation, is not telling us to work really, really hard to try and save ourselves. We've already seen earlier in this chapter how Jesus came to die and save us from our sins by dying on the cross. And that is the good news. That is the good news that God has already done everything we need to be in a right relationship with Him. So what does it actually mean to work out your salvation now then? What it means is to let the fruit or the results of your salvation work themselves out into every aspect and corner of your life the fear and the trembling he's referring to is not us being worried or afraid that we're not yet saved but in fact it's a healthy fear, a healthy respect when we realise just how amazing it is that our Creator emptied Himself and died in our place and that should cause us to respect and revere Him even more. So we've got to be working out and we need to be putting in effort into living out this kind of life worthy of the gospel. The Christian life is not just sitting back and waiting for Jesus to return one day. It involves effort. But at the same time, in verse 13, we need to be working hard because it is God who is working in us. So that makes me scratch my head and go, well, is it our job to be working out the effects of salvation? Or is God the one who's working out the fruit of salvation in our lives? Now, whose job is it? Like, I I don't want to be doing someone else's work and, you know, spending more energy than I need to. Well, the answer is that it's both, isn't it? We are given genuine, real human responsibility to work hard and to be putting into practice the implications of the gospel. We have a real task and a real job to be doing, but at the same time, it is God who sovereignly works in us to change us and reshape us and mould us so that we no longer live sinful and selfish lives, but we start looking outwards towards others and their interests. So Paul then goes on to explain some concrete ways in which this might express itself as our salvation works itself out in our lives. The first way in verse 14 is that humble, other-person-centered people no longer argue or grumble. You see, if you genuinely consider that other people are better than you are, then actually that means that you're going to stop complaining about them. You're not going to be looking down on them and talking about them negatively. Now, this thing sounds pretty simple, right? Just don't complain, don't grumble, all good. But it's so hard for us as Australians, isn't it? As a nation, we are a bunch of whingers. We complain about our government and how bad a job they're doing. We complain about our lecturers and think they have no idea how to teach us. We complain about our bosses at work and how they won't give us enough shifts. We complain about our family. We complain about the slow internet speeds. In fact, at Sydney University, we even have a whole Facebook page dedicated to ranting about things. That's right, you can go and complain about those people who walk slowly to Redfern Station or the people who talk on the phone in the bathrooms. You can talk and complain and whinge about all those people who are less significant and less important than you are. But Paul tells us in verse 15 to be pure and blameless, to be different and distinct, without fault in this crooked and dark generation in which God is shining us like stars in the dark night of our society and so in a society which is prone to whinging how are you going to shine like a star in a a culture which is designed to grasp onto your rights and hold them and cling onto them how are you going to shine in the darkness one of the key ways we do this in verse 16 is by holding firmly to the word of life you see the unity that Christians have is a unity in the Gospel, the good news which is found in God's life-giving Word, the Bible. Uh, We call ourselves the Evangelical Union because it is the Gospel, or the Evangel in Greek, uh, which unites us together in our union on campus. And so we need to make sure that we keep coming back to the words of the Scriptures. We need to make sure that our small groups, our one-to-one conversations and public meetings are centred around and come out of the Word of Life. The Evangelical Union is not a self-help group. Okay? We're not dispensing our own wisdom and advice. We're not just a social justice group. But we are a mission task force, a gospel union based on the foundation of the Scriptures, the Word of Life. Now, it'd be easy for us to look at the example of Jesus and go, well, that's easy for Jesus, right? Because He is fully God and fully human. Okay, Of course, it's easy for Him to live like this, but... What hope do I have as a regular Joe Blow on the street to live like this? How am I ever going to be able to live just the way that they've described? Uh, Well, thankfully, Paul gives us another three examples of people who are living with this Jesus mindset. He wants to encourage us. He wants to show us what it could look like in practice. And so the first one is Paul himself. In verse 16, we see that Paul labored for them. In verse 17, Paul describes him as being poured out or spent or emptied. Just like Jesus emptied himself and poured himself out, so too now Paul is emptying himself like a drink offering in a way he's laboured and exhausted himself for the benefit of the Philippians. He serves them and he pours his energy out so that their faith becomes mature and so that they too will then go and live sacrificial lives and so on and so on. And that is what brings Paul joy in verse 18. Seeing other people come to have that same mindset seeing the good news of the cross shape people and change them so radically. That is what Paul spends his life on. The second example we see in this passage is the example of Timothy in verse 19 onwards. Paul says in verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He see, as Paul looks out, he sees everyone else living this way where they're just looking out for their own interests. And that Timothy stands out as different. Timothy stands out as one of those bright lights in the dark sky by the way in which he has genuine concern for other people's welfare. Do you notice in verse 21 what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that everyone looks out for their own interests instead of looking out for you, Philippians. No, he says that Timothy's concern for the Philippians is ultimately and most importantly a concern for the interests and concerns of Jesus Christ himself. And so you see that in verse 22, when Paul explains how Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Timothy expresses that other person-centeredness and his sacrificial love for the Philippians by the way in which he serves in the work of the gospel, in proclaiming and teaching and rebuking and encouraging the Philippians with the word of life and growing them to maturity as well, just as Paul is. Now, there's lots of ways that we can love and sacrificially serve one another. Okay? Many tangible and practical real ways put other people's interests ahead of our own. But what guides and what orders all of our efforts is the ultimate way in which loving someone can be seen in helping them to know and be transformed by the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. For them to encounter the crucified Lord who died for them and for them to call Him Lord as they hear the word of life proclaimed in the scriptures. And the third and final example of other person-centered love in this passage is Epaphroditus. From what we can work out in this passage, you have to kind of read between the lines a little bit, but it sounds like Epaphroditus was a member of the church in Philippi. And he heard, along with the rest of the Philippians, that Paul was in prison over in Rome. And they all got a bit upset and worried that Paul was in prison, so they sent Epaphroditus as their messenger, as their emissary, to go and care for Paul's needs while he was in prison in Rome. So off Epaphroditus goes and he starts helping out and caring for Paul while he was in prison in Rome. While that happens, he gets sick. We're not sure, maybe it was a cold and flu, maybe he got cancer, we don't know. But all we know is that it was quite serious and he almost died. What happens is the Philippians back over here in Philippi hear that... Epaphroditus is sick, and they start to get worried. But then Paul hears that they're worried that Epaphroditus is sick, caring for his needs, so he decides to send Epaphroditus back to them so they won't be worried, and so everyone's caring for each other's interests, right? And so you see in verse 26, it says, He longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. This guy almost died as he served Jesus by serving Paul's physical needs so that Paul could continue to see the gospel go out even while he was in jail. It says that Epaphroditus risked his life. Just like Jesus, he too was willing to go to the point of death. It wasn't death on a cross, but it was still to the point of death. There was no limit on how far Epaphroditus was willing to go to love other people because true love, genuine love, has no limits. If Jesus was willing to die on a cross to serve you and to love you and to seek your good, then neither can you place limits on how far you are willing to go. Now, don't hear me wrong. It's not saying that we should just let people take whatever they want from us. Jesus actually gives on His terms, not on other people's terms, but He's willing to give on His terms up to the point of death itself. Okay, and so can you see how actually, this actually changes everything? Epaphroditus is not just some random example, but actually we see that in verse 29, Paul tells us to honour people like Him. He's someone we had to imitate or modify our lives around. Because Epaphroditus is living out the mindset that all of us are called to have if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And so what's your ambition in life? I asked us at the beginning. Uh, I want to ask you again, is it your ambition in life to play it safe? Uh, to not rock the boat too much, not to be too extreme in life and just kind of, you know, sail through and blend in with the crowd? Or is your aim in life to, to reach your dreams, to, to shoot for the stars? we've seen in this passage that rather than shooting for the stars, our goal is to shine like stars. Not by pursuing our own dreams or our own good, but instead by emptying ourselves like Jesus. But I want to ask you today, have you put a little disclaimer or a little asterisk on how far you're willing to go to love other people? Jesus didn't. There's a number of common problems I think that we can face as we think about this topic of sacrifice. And Rowan Kemp, our speaker at public meetings so far in semester, uh, has actually written an article on this, which I would suggest it's good for you to read if you want to think about this a bit more. And in this article he talks about four common ways in which we can fall into this distortion. He says, firstly, uh, we can sacrifice using the wrong model. You see, the model that we're given in this passage is to be based on the example of Jesus himself who radically went all the way to the cross itself. But so often, don't we model our example of sacrifice on those around us? We look to the person next to us in the lecture theatre and we go, well, if they're willing to give, then maybe I'll give. Or if they're willing to help that person, then maybe, maybe I might do a bit more than they do just to make myself look better than they do, right? Instead, we need to stop looking sideways and we need to start looking to the cross as our model and our example of what it means to Sacrifice. Secondly, though, we can be tempted to sacrifice only when we're compelled to. You know, if God appeared one day and told us, I want you to give up, you know, your car or I want you to give up your part-time job, then maybe we'd, we'd voluntarily give that up. But we see in this passage that Jesus joyfully and voluntarily sacrificed himself. He did so without complaining, without grumbling, but freely and with joy. Thirdly, we can sacrifice with the wrong attitude. We think that somehow we own the stuff that we're giving up and the things that we're sacrificing. But the Bible tells us that all the money we own, all the gifts we have, all the families you have, the careers you have, they all belong to God anyway. And He graciously gives them to you to steward or to look after. And so if they don't belong to you anyway, why are you holding on to them so tightly? And fourthly, And we can be tempted to sacrifice without any cost. We're happy to give if it doesn't actually hurt us, if it doesn't actually interfere with our already made plans for life. But that's not how Jesus envisages sacrifice. It actually cost him his very life. It almost cost Epaphroditus his life. It cost Paul his freedom as he writes from jail. Last year there was an article published online and what they were doing is they were analysing and tracing the, the changes and shifts in Christian bookshops and I noticed that how maybe 50 years ago if you looked at the bestsellers in a Christian bookshop the books were all focused around topics like sacrifice but as you fast forward to 2016 as you look in Christian bookshops today the top sellers are all about happiness and fulfillment how you can live your best life now and in some ways we've lost one of the key planks or key elements of the gospel that Jesus' cross doesn't just save you, but it actually reorients your life. Uh, 86 years ago, a medical student in London had just finished his degree. He's about to start a promising career as a doctor. But he'd been convinced by the Gospel that his life was to be spent, to be emptied, not in serving his own career, but in serving the Gospel so that more and more people could come to know Christ. And so he hopped on a boat and he went to Canada for a bit, and then he landed in this far-off island called Australia. And he came to this place called Sydney University and this guy, Dr. Howard Guinness, met, met with a bunch of Christian students and together they set up the Evangelical Union. And he spoke at their first public meeting, just like this. He sacrificed a promising medical career and he emptied himself of the privilege, the power and the success that that would have brought him for the sake of a handful of students in the colony, on the other side of the world so that they would know and love Jesus as their Lord. And 85 years later, you guys are benefiting from His sacrifice as you come along to the EU. And he wrote a book called Sacrifice, funnily enough, in which he talks about what it might look like for us to live lives sacrificially as we think about how to work in our jobs, how we spend our money, how we go on holidays, how we date, who we marry. And at the end of the book he ends with this quote, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love of Him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in His service? Where are His lovers, those who love Him and the souls of other people more than their own reputation or comfort or very life? What is your ambition?